Once again, welcome to Four Corners. Like Pastor Greg said, my name is Ben, and I'm so glad you're here for the last week of our Creed series, where we have been looking at this document called the Apostles' Creed. And ever since about 400 AD, it's been largely in the form that we have it today. And it's been a document that has rallied Christians from a variety of different traditions for a long time around a core central statements, around core central statements about what we believe. Now, there's a lot that divides Christians, so anytime you can find a document with this kind of longevity, a statement of belief that unites us, it's probably worth investigating. And so what we've been doing is unpacking the phrases, and we talked about God the Father Almighty, we talked about Jesus. As a church, we went out and served people, empowered by God's Spirit to become the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. We talked about the power of of a healthy local church last week. Today, I want to talk to you about something that maybe we don't think about a lot, or at least I haven't. Um, It's about eternity. In the Apostles' Creed, there's some language about the fact that this world is going to come to an end, and time as we know it is going to stop. And a new way of being, a new era, if you will, is going to occur. And the simple word for that is eternity. And I want to talk to you about living in light of eternity. Now, let me ask a question before I get, get rolling. Anybody have a birthday uh, this week? Either one past or one coming? Anybody in the room? We're not going to sing happy birthday. All right, a couple, couple of you here. That, that's awesome. That, that's really, really good. Here's something Mark Twain said. Now, this is not in the Bible, okay? It's Mark Twain. So, um, it's not my text. It's not my text. But it's a good point, and then we're going to tease it out through the pages of Scripture. Mark Twain said that the two best days of any person's life is the day they're born. So, congrats to those of you that... We're born in and around today. And then he said, the day you realize what you were born for. The two most important days, two best days, the two greatest days in a person's life is the day that they're born. That's when we have birthdays and we celebrate year in, year out, right? And then the day you discover why, what you are here for. Now, I don't know where Mark Twain was in his faith. Sometimes when you read his stuff, he's kind of uh, sarcastic about faith, and sometimes he's pretty profound, like in this statement. But in this particular statement, that the two best days of your life are the day you were born and the the day you discover what you were born for, well, that's incredibly biblical. It's theologically consistent with the Scriptures. And it gets to the heart of the matter that I want to talk with you today about, which is this eternal perspective. Living with the idea that the life we see right now isn't all that there is. On occasion, being able to refocus our eyes, not just on what's around us, but with what's going to be happening for the rest of time. Now, for just a minute, I want to talk to the engineers in the room. The rest of you can uh, bow out for a second, all right? Um, you'll, You'll see why in a second. In geometry, there's the concept of a point. Now, a point is a, is a, 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 ge- a geometric concept that has a couple of unique properties about it. The point doesn't exist on any plane. So see why I'm talking to engineers right now? They're salivating. Everybody else is like, oh, my God, I should have paid attention in math. All right, maybe not. You're going to get this in just a second. Anyway. But a point doesn't exist on any particular plane. It's just an identification of a spot. There's, there's another geometric idea when you take geometry in 10th, 11th grade, right? or if you're like gifted in 9th grade or really gifted in 8th grade. Um, there's another idea, and it's the line. And a line exists in a plane, but geometrically speaking, a line goes on in both directions forever. 
That's hard for us to comprehend, so we identify it through a, through a dash, if you will. But geometrically speaking, this line goes on in the plane that it exists forever. And I wanted to just identify that because this helps us get to the perspective that I want us to consider biblically today. And ultimately, I don't want to just teach you something today. I want you to leave here thinking differently, having a different perspective on the forefront of your brain, and being able to see something a little differently maybe than you did when you walked in the door. So, here's what I'm talking about to kind of put these two ideas together. This is the geometric concept of the line. It goes on indefinitely in both directions. This little point right here really is our lives. Long before you came here, time was going on. There was an existence. In fact, this is so hard to wrap your head around that when the Bible starts first talking about time, it doesn't define it in these rigid words. It just says in the beginning. When we first started noticing time, when time began in the way that we understand it, and it begins with this phrase, in the beginning, God. And then throughout the Bible, it's It continues the concept that God existed long before we started calculating and understanding time in the way that we do now. So that's the line going backwards, if you will. And then God decided to create the heavens and the earth. A lot of debate how that happened, but theologically the key concept here is, is that it began with God's idea. It's not an accident, and God is at work. We explored that at length in week one of this message series. So he existed before time as we know it, And the other side of the line, he's going to exist long after. But somewhere in God's design plan, in his full existence, he decided that you should be on this earth. Nobody in this room is an accident. No one. I'm not. You're not. Your parents may have thought you were. Your procreation, your birth, may be the result of some event that really was very unpleasant and unplanned. But it's still was very much a part of God's design that you be on this earth. So for us, for me, for you, time begins, not in the past necessarily, although it was there in the mind of God, time begins in the moment of our birth. That's what Mark Twain was talking about. But I don't know if you've ever considered this, that from the moment you entered time, you're never going to cease to exist. That most Christians throughout the last couple thousand years have believed that life is so precious, human life is so precious, that the moment you are a thought in God's mind, and then the moment you become a part of this time-space continuum that we live in, you're going to exist forever. It's a major motivating force in this church, the basic assumption that we're all going to spend eternity either with God or away from God. And with that motivation, we feel a lot of compulsion to take God's word seriously and make sure people understand the greatest news this world has ever heard, that Jesus came, gave his life on a cross, was resurrected from a tomb, and because of that, we can have life eternal with God, that our life from the moment we were born moving forward can be an eternal union with God. So here's a key concept for the day. It's real easy to look at the life around us and to think that that's all that there is. And it's almost impossible to consider that there's anything more than that when troubles and challenges and difficulties and emotionally 
um, taxing situations are, are pressing in on us. It's almost impossible in those kinds of negative situations to think that there's any more than this right here. Sometimes people are overcome, so consumed with what's going on in their lives right here that they lose all hope that the thing that they're in right now is temporary. The key concept today is, is that the life as we see it, the life as we experience it here and now, it literally is nothing more than a dot on the line. It's a significant dot. It's an important dot. But it is not the most important thing in the world. With the advance of modern science and because we live in a, in a country that is blessed, that we, we're fortunate people, all things being equal, we have a life expectancy of 70 plus years. 80 years, 90 years, not unheard of for people to hear, hit 100, you know? But even that is nothing more than the dot on the line of eternity. We're not the only people that have struggled with this. The wisest man that ever lived, a guy by the name of Solomon, at least that's the way it describes him. When you read his life, it makes me pause for a second. Did he have moments of brilliance when it comes to wisdom, or did he live constantly in a state of wisdom? Because when I look at his life, it seems like he made some really stupid decisions. In fact, he decided that in his life it would be wise to have 300 mother-in-laws. He did. That, doesn't that just make you ask if he was really all that wise? Now, the way he experienced it was is he had 300 wives. I think that that was a better way of saying it, but when I read it, I go straight to 300 mother-in-laws. All right, so I don't know if he had moments of brilliance and they were so great that they overshadowed everything, and so that's why he's the wisest man, or if he lived in perpetual wisdom, I don't know. But the Bible says he's the wisest man. Well, he, he, he writes a book in your Bible called Ecclesiastes, and in that book, he discusses this concept of time. And after spending five, six chapters exploring the concept of time and what it means to live in this earth, his concluding concept at the, at the last couple sentences of his book called Ecclesiastes is, here's the whole idea, here's the sum of time, that the best way to spend your time here and now is to fully give your life to God and when, you, when you look at it. What he was doing is, is the more that he explored where he was in time and space here and now, the more his mind shifted to what was going to be going on outside of the here and now. That's exactly what I want you to consider today. That we spend a lot of our time, especially as adults, thinking about what's going to happen over the next 30 to 40 to 50 years. In our 20s, maybe we don't think about it at all. In our 30s, probably many of us begin to think about it. I'm 45, look 29, I know. But don't laugh so hard. Come on. Come on, that was supposed to be a chuckle, not a full-blown laugh. I mean, my sense of scale and yours are obviously very different, all right? Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, I'm 45, and so I spend a lot of time now. Not like every day. I don't wake up in this sense of, you know, of remorse about the fact that I've got a good 20 to 30 years left. But at some point in our adult life, you start thinking about what's left. We, we come to terms with the fact that the dot, life as we know it, is going to, to change. And it's in those moments I think we might be especially poised to consider what the Bible would like for us to embrace as the greater reality. Not the dot, but the line. Not the dot, but the line. Not the temporary, not what we see around us only, but a reality that supersedes what we see. It's the thing that every crisis counselor wants to convince any person that picks up a phone and says, help me, I'm at the end of my rope. 
Every crisis counselor wants that person on the other end of the line to understand that what you're going through right now is temporary. It's hard, of course, it's real. You gotta face it, but it's temporary. And it doesn't define everything for you. What this means for us today is this. Some of us are in unbelievable pressure right now. Unbelievable. Financial pressure. Relational pressure. Feelings of hopelessness. Now, that's not everybody's experience in the room, but for a lot of us it is. And for some of you, you're not there, but you know what that was like at some point. The marriage didn't quite, you know, you're a couple years in and it's not quite where you want it to be. You had the kid and you thought it would look like this, but now it looks like this. And you're almost overcome with your circumstances. You did the best you could financially and things happened around you. Maybe you contributed with a few poor choices. And now you're in a situation that you can't see out of it. In those kinds of times, it's incredibly important to remember that you're living in the dot but there is a line that supersedes, overshadows, and ultimately defines the reality of the dot. What you're going through right now isn't permanent. Here's the flip side. Some of you are an incredible great place. And things seem to be clicking. They probably aren't clicking as well as you think they are, but because you're in a pretty good place, you tend to put rose-colored glasses on, and you look at the world right now, and you're thinking, it's good, I've got it together largely, and we're doing all right. I want you to understand something as well, if you're in a pretty good place right now. That the, where you are right now isn't permanent. It's not always going to be this way. And that's not necessarily me trying to call you over to the dark side and consider something bad. In fact, I don't want to even think through these things in terms of good or bad, because that's a very subjective kind of thing. I want you and I to today contemplate whether or not, might, whether or not there might be something that is as we see it, good or bad, and then something better superseding, more real, is the way people who've explored this at length described it. That there's a more real reality. It's what Mark Twain was trying to get to when he said, the greatest days of your life, the two are when you're born, but then when you discover what you're here for. I don't know when that happened for me fully. I know that I got hints of it as a, as a, uh, a preteen, teen, as my family was heavily engaged in church, and on occasion, I would wrestle with the fact that I knew God had put me on this earth for something. Sometimes I had crystal clarity about that. Other times it was a, a nebulous thought, but there would often be in me a stirring. And in my second year of college, near the end of my first, into my second year of college, I kind of submitted to a general plan that I thought God had for me, that I would give myself to ministry, not knowing fully what it meant, and it terrified me. Because when I looked at the pastors around me, in my heart, I said this, I don't really want to be like them. Not that they were bad guys, I just didn't want the life that they had. I looked at their lives and said, eh. In fact, what I would like to do is be a fighter pilot. I would like to, in fact, truly be, if I could be so honest, Tom Cruise in Top Gun. <laughs> That's really the life I wanted. And I'm not kidding, all right? That's really what I wanted. But on occasion, I would feel this compulsion that there was something more. So at the end of my freshman year, I, uh, I came home from an event where there was some prayer, and I remember making that internal decision. All right, I don't know what it means, but all right, God, I think this is what you want. I'm going to do it. And I came home that evening, and I, I um, asked my parents if I could speak to them for a second, and I said, look, I've got this big news I want to share with you. I feel like God has, you know, 
asked me to do ministry with my life. I'm scared to death. And so they kind of looked at me and my, my mom was the first to speak and she said, you're just now figuring that out? We've known this for a very long time. I wanted them to go, yay, awesome. They were just like, yeah, this is the most obvious thing in the world. Here's why I say that. There are people around you who look at your life and they see something in you that you can't yet see for yourself. They see in you not just the circumstances you're in. They see in you not just the way you define yourselves. They see in you not just your situation. They see in you a capacity that's yet untapped. They see in you a potentiality that you haven't yet fully explored. Sometimes it's a teacher with profound insight. She's seen dozens, hundreds, others, but in you there's something unique. Sometimes you get to hear it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's a parent. In our church, we try to create an entire environment where we live, not just with the dot in mind, but with the eternal perspective in mind, because we believe that this world doesn't do a good enough job at helping people understand that they are more than their circumstances, they're more than their broken relationship, they're more than their checking account, they're more than the title next to their name. That there is an eternal perspective that God defines that's greater than, that supersedes, that is better than all of that other stuff. We didn't make it up. We certainly didn't pull it straight from Mark Twain. We pulled it from a passage like this and in 2 Kings chapter 6, you're welcome to go there if you want. 2 Kings chapter 6 is a powerful story that gets overlooked. It's the story of a prophet by the name of Elisha. Elisha is a powerful prophet in the Old Testament. And God uses him to speak to kings and commoners. And when he does, and when they listen, their lives are changed forever. And one day, a neighboring country, the country of Aram, had a king. And that king was at war with Israel. Constant skirmishes, and the king of Aram couldn't win any battles against Israel, and he was frustrated. So one day in a council meeting, one of the king of Aram's servants says to the king of Aram, here's the deal. It's not the king of Israel that's your problem. It's the prophet Elisha. If you could get a hold of Elisha, the power behind Israel's king will be stripped, and you'll be able to win. So the king of Aram discovers where Elisha lives and sends his entire army to surround Elisha's house. This is a bad day. Circumstances are changing rapidly. Now, we don't know all the scene at Elisha's house. When the king of Aram sends his army to capture Elisha to strip Israel of its power. But we get two snapshots of two different people in that environment. We get the snapshot of Elisha, and the, largely the picture of Elisha is this. Now, it doesn't say this. This is the way I picture it in my mind if I were making a movie about it so that people could argue about whether or not my movie was biblical. This is the way it would look, all right? A couple chuckles, you got that, all right? I'm not even going to explore that anymore. All right. Um, Elisha's kind of sitting at the table, twiddling his thumbs. Armies around us. Here I am. I mean, we're going to be fine. And then there's Elisha's servant. That's the other guy in the story that we get a perspective of. And he's running around with his head cut off. He literally says, and it sounds so modern, Oh, Lord, what are we going to do? Literally, like in the Hebrew, it says, Oh, Lord, what are we going to do? Have you ever had an Oh, Lord, what are we going to do moment? I've had a handful of those. Um, I, I, bet, I bet you've had a handful of those. 
And, and this servant of Elisha, his name is Gehazi, he is literally running around freaking out because the circumstances have changed and all he can see is what's going on right around him. What's going on right around him has completely overshadowed everything else. Now, up to this point, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, he has seen all kinds of powerful stuff happen. One chapter before, one turn of the page before this event, he saw a man with leprosy instantly healed. He saw Elisha, the Bible tells us, raise a person from the dead. So he has a lot of very positive things happening, but now the circumstances have changed, become so stark, so challenging, that all he can see is the moment. Oh Lord, what are we going to do? And then Elisha says something in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, that is powerful. He says these phrases on your screens. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. Open his eyes, Lord, that he can see. Now in a second, I'm going to tell you what he saw when the Lord answered Elisha's prayers. But can we just think about that prayer for just a moment? Elisha was pointing out to Gehazi that yes, it's tough. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, I don't even know exactly how we're going to get out of this. And in fact, this might change things. But what we see right now isn't all there is. I don't even know what's going on in your life. But I know this because God's word and, and the authority of God's word reveals it to us. It reveals it to you as well. That what's going on in your life is not all that there is. That we don't know the whole story. That we experience now, but there is an eternity circling, circling all around us. What's happening now touches that eternity. It's a point in time, but it's not all of time. That the next 30 to 40 years are important, but the next 30 to 40,000 years are more important. And what we do in our 30 to 40 to 70 to 90 to 100 years matters. But it doesn't matter near as importantly as, in, as eternity. And what we do for the now is important and it matters and it shapes our character. But what we do for eternity matters on a greater level. God, open his eyes that he can see. And the Bible says that when Elisha prayed this prayer, Gehazi's eyes were opened. You can read this for yourself. It's a powerful one-chapter story. 2 Kings chapter 6. And when Gehazi's eyes were opened, he looked at the surrounding hills. The idea is that the house was in a valley. Strategically, a very bad place to put your house if you're worried about a king attacking you. And the mountains are surrounding the house. And the moment Elisha prayed the prayer, Gehazi's eyes opened and he looked around the surrounding hills. And the Bible uses this kind of language that Gehazi saw the army of the Lord and it far outnumbered the army of the king of Aram. He literally saw the angelic armies of God. And, and the, the, the summary statement on the thing was that those that are for us, God, God's agenda, what God's doing in the world is greater than the present circumstances. And the next few verses describe how the, the armies of God brought confusion to the armies of Aram. And Elisha and Gehazi lived another day to continue to do God's work. 
The Apostle Paul experienced very similar kinds of things, not with the king of Aram, but with circumstances going very badly for him. And yet he had an anchor in his soul, an anchor tied not just to the moment, but to eternity. And that anchor in his soul, something you can have if you don't, something that can be stronger for you than it maybe is, something that can speak into the now as opposed to the now being the only thing that you hear. That was, it was huge for the Apostle Paul. So in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says it this way. See if you can kind of understand and unpack the theological implications of this. The Apostle Paul writes, We look not to the things that are seen, the now, the circumstance, the situation only, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They change. They come and go. Shadows and sunlight. That's what Solomon wrestled with. There's a time for everything, a season under heaven. But the things that are unseen are eternal. In fact, they're more real. What we do with our 70, 80, 90, 100 years matters, of course. I want to downplay that. But when you put it in perspective, it's a dot on a long, continuous line that goes on forever and ever. What we do for 30 years is not near as important as what we'll do for 30,000 years. So here's the challenge, and you can follow along on the screens with me here. We are all living in, in your life, in your marriage, in your finances, in your history, in your abuse, in your challenge, in your dreams, in your opportunities. We're all living in. Every one of us have a story. And that's important. But at this church and in all churches around the world, the in is not the most important part. The question becomes, of course you're living in, but what are you living for? Not just what are you living in, that matters. It impacts how we answer the next question. But the next question is vastly more important. What are you living for? It's the idea of the short today versus the very long tomorrow. And the Bible wants us to know, the Apostles' Creed is trying to make it clear, biblical saints throughout time and eternity have tried to make it very obvious in their lives that the long tomorrow is more important. And so it begs this question for us. How are we going to invest what will last not just for 30 years, but for 30,000 years? How are we going to do that? How are we going to pull ourselves from seeing just what's around us? Didn't we sing about that all morning? I don't know about you, this is totally subjective. So let me just throw something out. It's going to sound weird. If you don't like it, email me. My email is greg at fourcornerschurch.com, all right? So we were singing the songs this morning, and uh, it doesn't happen all the time, and it shouldn't be an expectation, but on occasion, and it's very subjective. Maybe it happens for you, maybe not. But sometimes it's like there's an extra energy in the room. Now, maybe you didn't experience that today. I did. Maybe it's just because of, you know, stuff going on in my life. Who knows? But as we were singing songs about, God, I want to see you, set my vision, be my vision, let you be the thing I rally around, what we sung in song today is exactly the point I'm trying to make right now. That there's a way of looking at life where God is at the center and the eternal things matter more than the temporary. 
that actually brings energy and life and perspective to the temporary. The two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you discover what you were born for. So what does the Bible tell us is going to last for 30,000 years? Not my 70, 90, 100. Here's just a handful of things real quick without exploring them deeply. God's going to last forever. And so an investment in God and God's stuff, it supersedes whatever else is going on in our lives at the time. It supersedes every bit of that. An investment in God's stuff is more important than how I'm experiencing life around me right now. And so what this does is it becomes an anchor that when I don't like what's going on in my life, the temporary, the now, the in, the dot, that I can then begin to shift my vision, ask God to be my vision. Ask him to open the eyes of my heart, to accept the prayer that Elisha prayed for Gehazi, and I appropriate it for me. God, open my eyes so that I may see what's really going on. And an investment in you and the stuff you care about, that's what really, really matters. In fact, it's the only thing that's going to matter in 30,000 years. So what does God care about? Here's a handful of things. It's not an exhaustive list. God cares about his word. Now, I mean the Bible, of course. But I also mean the person of Jesus. You may not know this, but Jesus was called the Word made flesh. It's the very knowledge and character of God being revealed to people. Anywhere we make an investment in helping people know God, that's an investment that's going to last for forever. That's why the, the letter that Lisa referenced just a few moments ago is so important and powerful because no matter what happens in the person's life that wrote that letter to that child in India saying, I hope you understand how treasured you are in God's eyes, no matter what happens, that investment in that young girl, that stoking the fire of the eternal perspective, that's going to ring true for the next million years. And while the Barbies we gave them give them a smile, it can only give them a smile temporarily. But the investment we make into their eternity and their life with God will last forever. That's why, friends, every time you invest in God's word being made clear to somebody else, it's an investment that's going to last for a million years. Here's another thing that God cares deeply about. He cares about his church. That's why Jesus gave his life for his church. That's why the church is called the bride of Christ. Do you want to know how to get close to my heart, honestly? Not that you care, but if you did. Love my wife and kids. You love my wife and kids, we're friends forever. It's exactly how Jesus feels about his church. You love his wife. You invest in his wife. You give to his wife. You serve his wife. You embrace his wife, not in the bad way, of course, because that metaphor breaks down real quick. All metaphors do. It's okay to laugh. I just make kind of a joke on a very serious topic, and everybody freaks out a little bit. It's okay. But you embrace, you love, you serve. When you and I invest in the church, our local church, and the church at large, that invisible body of followers of Jesus that spans time, that supersedes denomination, when we make an investment in the church, it's an investment that's going to last a million years. You've never given a nickel to God's church that isn't going to have an impact for eternity. That's just the way God designed it to be. It's why, honestly, in a few minutes, I'll go ahead and prep you. I'm going to ask you if you're willing to step up and help us financially. 
I'm, you know, not going to go big on it. Obviously, I've only got like two minutes left, so obviously it's not going to be hard. I just want to prep you that that's coming because I think an investment of your time and money and more importantly, your heart into God's church matters. So God, His Word, His church, and His people. These are things that are going to last forever. And when I say His people, I mean all of them, those in the church. And when they're in the church, the Bible tells us what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to grow them up in their faith. And those outside the church, and when they're outside the church, the Bible tells us what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love them into the church. When we make an investment to people in the church and outside the church, it's an investment that lasts forever. It helps anchor our soul, not just in the dot, but in the line. I've been living long enough to have experienced these cycles many times. That when my dot isn't going the way I want it to go, I find the anchor of my soul. So here it is for me, in just a couple of words. I know God's called me to be a Christian, have a relationship with him. And there's a lot that can happen in my life that doesn't change that. And knowing that gives me perspective to handle a lot that's happening in my life. And it can do the same for you. It's why you have to be committed to your own spiritual growth. Because it becomes an anchor in your soul. It's why this is a good church to attend if that's your heart to grow in your faith. I know God's called me to be a husband to Jill. I don't know if that was his plan from time and eternity, but the moment I stood before her, a minister in a congregation, and I said, I do, from that point on, God wanted her to be my wife for the rest of time. That's, that's, that's an anchor. What this means is when I'm, comp- sorry, honey, for this next sentence, when I'm completely fed up with her, and it's only happened like times, and um. When I'm completely fed up and I think, maybe the grass is greener. Now, again, very rare. There's an anchor in my soul. I know that God's called me to be a dad to Ellen, Connor, Max, and John. My in doesn't affect that because that stuff is a part of my four. I know that God has called me to be a minister. I don't know what your anchors are. But today is a call for you to figure out, not that you're on the earth, you already know that because you're already in. Today is a call for you to figure out you're for. What are you here for? And you're in a good church to do that. You're in a really good church to do that. Because we believe it's part of our mission to help people discover the way God has wired them and to give them the tools to both reach the people in the church and grow them in their faith, and reach the people outside the church and love them into a relationship with Jesus and bring them into the church. That's part of the anchor of your soul that God means for you and for me to be the thing that holds us through the storm. So, no matter what you or I do for a living, your days here can make a profound difference for eternity. And ultimately, that's all that really matters. What you and I do for eternity is all that really matters. This is what the Apostles' Creed is trying to say when it says that we're going to go on and be with God or we're going to be without God. That the now matters, but it's not the most important thing. This is what Elisha was praying. Open his eyes, let him see what's really going on around him. Yeah, the king of Aram has surrounded us, but there's so much more that God's doing. That's what the Apostle Paul was trying to say when he said, we see the scene But the unseen is what really matters. So I just want to ask you, can you see it? 
can you, can you see not the dot, but the line? It's very hard for me sometimes. It's elusive. And I have to constantly go back. So here's what we're going to do as a congregation to kind of take a couple steps in that direction. Would you grab out your connect card and let's see if maybe God doesn't motivate your heart to take a step or two with us today. Next step A on our connect cards is this, that I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, basically you're making the ultimate eternal investment. I'd modify Mark Twain's words to say that the two best days are the day you were born and the the day that you discover what you're here for. There's an in-between for a lot of us in this room. It's the day that we discover that God loves us and wants a relationship with us. If you don't know that, we ask you to check next step A, and when the offering bucket comes by at the end of the service, put the card in there, and we're going to pray with you and send you some information about what a life with Jesus can, can look like and give, give you a few first steps. Or how about next step B? You want to get baptized. Man, we celebrated that second service here last week, and what a powerful moment it was for so many of us. As two, uh, two people got baptized, indicating that, that they were right with God and on a path, not just for eternity, but in this life as well, to live their lives for him. Or how about next step C? I'm, I'm just really into taking God's word into our lives lately. So here it is from Paul, a little longer than normal. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I think by memorizing that, maybe we can constantly remind ourselves that the dot matters, but the line is much more important. Or how about next step D? Make an investment in people that God loves and invite a friend here next week for chocolate Easter. I've been taking chocolate bars and chocolate candy all over the city um, using my little chocolate Easter invite. It's costing me a fortune. Not really. About 30, 40 bucks is how far I'm in right now. But it's a, it's a load of fun to hand out a chocolate bar and say, come with me to church next week. And he, here's the one I referenced earlier. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the truth is, is it takes money to do ministry. And we're asking you to give to the Easter offering. Here would be my hope, that you would do that, and then you wouldn't stop. Not for everybody in the room, and if you can't, that's okay, but if God's blessed you and you have the capacity to give more, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to think about increasing your monthly giving to our church. I use monthly because that's how we pay the bills around here. So if like, you give 50, make it 55, if, if you can. Jill and I are praying about how to up our giving, and I'd like you to just pray with us about that. Can we, can we join in prayer right now about this eternal thing that God's put in front of us? God, I want to pray along with Elisha as he prayed for Gehazi. Lord, would you open our eyes to see? I want to join with the Apostle Paul and ask you to remember that the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are eternal, they go on forever. God, would you help us to remember that the things we do now matter, but the things that we do now that impact eternity matter so much more. God, give us great boldness this week to invite our friends. God, help us honestly wrestle with what you would like us to invest financially back into this church. And God, for those people right now that aren't in a relationship with you, help them to turn their lives over to you and acknowledge, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I accept your death and resurrection to secure my relationship with God. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen and amen.